This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this week's episode of the show, I sit down with Dr. Tanya Evans to talk about the state of crypto in the wake of last week's landmark criminal fraud conviction of the former CEO of FTX and the former prophet of crypto, Sam Bankman-Fried. Dr. Evans and I discuss what kind of new crypto economy might emerge in the wake of this conviction. We discuss the principles and possibilities of digital assets, and we talk about the challenges of regulating new financial technologies. Dr. Tanya M. Evans is a distinguished professor at Penn State Dickinson Law and a leading expert in intellectual property and new technologies. With a prestigious 2023 Edge in Tech Athena Award, she is highly sought after as a keynote speaker and a consultant. Her expertise spans blockchain, entrepreneurship, entertainment law, and more. As a member of international boards and committees, including the World Economic Forum Wharton DAO Project Series, Dr. Evans remains at the forefront of cutting-edge research. She recently testified before the House Financial Services Committee and the Copyright Office and the USPTO to advise on the intellectual property law issues related to NFTs and blockchain technology. Hi, Tanya. Hi. So, Tanya, as we're recording a conversation about crypto assets today, and I'll just give the date so that listeners know when we're recording, that's uh, November 8th, 2023, Sam Bankman-Fried, the infamously disgraced former CEO of the cryptocurrency trading firm FTX, has just been found guilty of all seven charges against him, including fraud on FTX customers and investors, fraud on Alameda's lenders and conspiracy to commit money laundering, and several more charges. Now, many people are citing revelations of FTX's fraudulent activities, which first emerged in September uh, 2022, and the recasting of Bankman-Fried, who previously had been sort of seen as a guru in finance and a sort of crypto prophet, really recasting him as a kind of grifter, a catalyst for the collapse of the crypto industry writ large. I know you've written about Bankman-Fried, and I know that you have strong opinions about what his fraudulence reveals about crypto and the world of digital assets and what you think folks maybe misunderstand about what occurred. So what, in your view, happened? What went wrong? Yeah, that's, you know, uh, there's so much. First of all, thank you very much for having me on. And I think any opportunity to help demystify the space is important because so often entire narratives are reduced to a title, often clickbait in social media. And it's kind of easy to dismiss emerging technologies, particularly when people don't understand and don't really want to have a vested interest in understanding. And so I found myself in that 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 vortex over this last year. It's, it's a year ago, November 7th was when he was first arrested in the Bahamas. And so what a difference a year makes. I talk a lot about the Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX debacle, and that's an understatement because now he's a convicted felon. So we can I, I can stop saying alleged. I, I am a lawyer. <laughs> And so um, not having to say alleged at this point is great, but it really, the what he involved himself in and what he undertook was to get people to agree to leave assets on a centralized exchange that only he controlled and without their knowledge and consent, then moving those assets, whether it be fiat, which is government issued currency or some crypto asset, transferring those to his sister company, Alameda Research, hedge fund, you know, leveraging, being over leveraged and, and really a high, high grade frenzy scheme uh, of very much the same as, you know, Bernie Madoff. It makes me think of Lehman Brothers or all of these other places and spaces where the currency or the asset may change, but the grift is still the same. Um, and so I was frustrated with and wanted to right size the conversation about what Activity he engaged in to say that separate enough. It was done under the guise of crypto that most people didn't understand. That was happening at a time where uh, we were in the middle of a, a bull cycle. People are chasing the price. 
We have folks like Tom Brady on saying, you know, this is a great asset to invest in. People were less likely to do their research because they had trusted faces and spaces as well. But it took a relatively short period of time to bring him to justice. Uh, it took much longer when I think of Madoff or other folks and entities that di- were never held accountable when I think of like the housing market crisis, et cetera, et cetera. And so while that's the reason that I spend so much time talking about it, not to dismiss his activities at all, but I really think that the uh, law should be focused on the activities and the actions rather than the asset, because there's nothing inherently fraudulent or or scammy about cryptographically secured assets. Um, And and hopefully we can unpack that as we continue in conversation. So what I'm essentially hearing from you is that you are deflecting attention away from the actual technology itself or the currency in which this technology is involved in and really saying that there's potential or or maybe an opportunity for bad actors to seize on a lack of knowledge in the general public, um, maybe some mystification that happens around a new technology or a new fad and to have those bad actors capitalize on the public's lack of knowledge. And I guess my mind goes immediately to tulip mania. Uh, the 1630s and the kind of economic crisis that ensued after people went crazy over the idea that tulip bulbs would have some sort of like special economic power or some special uh, significance as a, a form of capital. I'm wondering if you could give us maybe some historical precedent for the phenomenon that that you're talking about. Is this something that's happened independent of a kind of new emerging technologies or are new emerging technologies, particularly ones that intersect with the economic market, specifically in the way that crypto does, but maybe there are other historical precedents that I'm less aware of. Is this another iteration of that? Or is there something new or fundamentally different, do you think, about proposed or what crypto is as a technology? Let me kind of take a step back and even identify what crypto is. We, We use the moniker. It's a bit of a misnomer when I think of cryptocurrencies, given that in the United States and in many countries around the world involved in taxation, the asset is actually taxed as a capital asset. And yet it does have properties when we think of the exchange of value, we think of a medium of exchange, a unit of account, store of value, and yet cryptographically secured assets. Where does the crypto come from? It comes from cryptography, uh, obviously a technology that's been around for many, many, many years. In fact, that predate the the digital age, to be sure. Anytime we wanted to communicate with someone from point A to point B without it being intercepted, there was some type of way to encrypt the message and only the recipient would be able to decrypt it, right? So at a very high and macro level, that's what we're talking about with respect to cryptography, but then also using other existing technologies, peer-to-peer technology used, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and makes me think of Napster and Grokster and a BitTorrent, which is still around, to exchange. And for those who won't be able to see me, to exchange media files. I am an intellectual property lawyer by training. I operate and and work, speak, and teach at the intersection of intellectual property and new technologies, which was my entree into the space. And so thinking about that, certainly the internet and also consensus, a means of coming to agreement about the state of transactions, balances, and values at any particular time. All of that technology existed, but it was combined in a novel way in order to create the next opportunity to exchange value. And it makes me think of before government issued physical money was around. We were in smaller villages, could be quite tribal. We would trust our circle because we knew them. We all operated in the same place in space. You knew people's parents and their families. But when we started to trade outside of trusted communities, we needed that intermediary. It's like, I don't know you, but I trust this intermediary to facilitate this transaction and and make it less likely or de-risk this exchange of value. And then we kind of move forward to the reason that nation states would raise money and control monetary policy through taxation, oftentimes to protect borders. We see a lot of that playing itself out now in very high stakes ways as well. 
So the idea of having a method or means of exchanging value that isn't beholden to a particular government or border is an important step forward as a matter of financial privacy and agency, not to replace it. I'm not a card-carrying member of anarchy or burning my dollars. I love dollars. Thank you, dollar. But there is a way to think about this, not only academically and normatively, but practically speaking, what it means to have financial privacy in that space. And so that's another reason to even talk about cryptocurrency separate and apart as a new asset. The final point in answer to the original question around how we compare this moment in time with this new asset class to other examples, it does take me back to the Buttonwood days when I think of stocks or and other securities, when I think of kind of the wild west of securities where you have high volatility, they're prone to grips because anytime there's a honeypot of money <laughs> or that opportunity to take advantage of the fact that folks don't know, uh, making it intentionally difficult to unpack and understand. Finance and tech had a baby. We call it crypto. There is nothing more challenging for someone. It's like a microcosm of a microcosm. And yet there's still, and, and we will continue to talk about this, there's opportunities on the other side of that because it's not as difficult as it appears at first blush. This is the natural cycle of a nascent asset class until there's injected, it's injected with greater liquidity, more entrance in the marketplace, the law and regulations settle around it and it starts to mature. I want to talk a little bit about regulation, especially regulation in the way that you're describing cryptocurrencies as something that is maybe transnational or something that supersedes national borders as a kind of currency, because it seems to me like one of the challenges with regulation is setting up an internationally governing body to regulate what has typically been the purview and the kind of regulatory uh, authority taken by a national government. But before I do that, <laughs> just I'm putting a pin in that question that with the hopes that we can return to it shortly. I actually wanted to ask you to dive a in a little bit into the point that you brought up about your intellectual trajectory from thinking and talking and researching and, and I presume teaching um, intellectual property law to moving to, to crypto, because that to me seems like a very interesting jump. And I'll just give a little bit of background for my question. I recently had an opportunity to go back and look at uh, the very famous Louis Brandeis 1930s position that he writes on the idea of looking at financial markets and in particular looking at financial markets and fraud in financial markets and coming to a kind of legal determination that there needs to be transparency in financial markets. Now, the reason that I'm looking into this right now is because I'm very interested in Section 230. And Section 230 takes as its kind of slogan, sunshine is the best disinfectant, which comes out of that paper. And I was surprised and very interested to see that Brandeis's comment about sunshine being the best disinfectant, which essentially we take to mean that the idea of transparency allows for us to shine light on bad behavior and tends to move bad actors toward acting better because of the knowledge that they have somebody looking over their shoulder. I was surprised to see that this actually comes out of a kind of meditation on the financial sector itself. And so I'm wondering, in terms of intellectual property and in terms of your interest in financial markets and your move to crypto, what the trajectory was there? What got you to thinking about cryptocurrencies from intellectual property? And how, in particular, are you thinking about that at the intersection of law? Mm -hmm. um, back in 2017, I had a friend who was pursuing an advanced degree in new media. And one of the working groups she was involved in was at the time what I thought to be some, I didn't know what she was talking about, quite frankly, something about a working group, something about magic internet money, something about blockchain, not Bitcoin, and a novel way to organize data that is both secure and transparent, um, allowing for accessibility uh, when I think of something that is quote unquote public and permissionless that was built on a layer one solution that was open source software. Software implicates both copyright and patent. 
And so I had no idea what she was talking about, about the magic internet money at the time, but I was interested in distributed protocols and, and these new ways to secure, to validate, to verify in a very transparent, real-time way that was quite different from the existing financial system. And so as I thought of that, that, that was interesting to me because I was also, I teach information privacy, I teach administrative law, I teach intellectual property law courses, and of course, blockchain crypto in the law. And so I wanted to have a special section devoted to the intellectual property implications of the technology. And that began my foray into the space to figure out what it was. I'm intellectually curious by training. I, you know, I was the editor-in-chief of my law journal. I clerked in the Third Circuit. I started in big law. I'm an only child who is my own best friend. I could sit in the corner for hours reading dusty books. And that is my idea of a good day. You know, fast forward to the end of 2017, in the beginning of 2018, once I realized in order to actually appreciate the functionality of blockchains, the collaborative interoperability that's required for layer one solutions to support this build, it was really, really fascinating. And there weren't a lot of intellectual property lawyers speaking about this. There still aren't a ton. But it led to a series of law review articles. The first was CryptoKitties Cryptography and Copyright. And that was a fantastic piece where at the time I felt like my colleagues <laughs> across the nation and dare I say the world wanted to throw tomatoes in, in eggs. It was as if I was Satoshi Nakamoto talking about this thing that needed to be, you know, uh, attacked, unpacked, any academic term we could come up with and a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty and what I consider to be a lot of fear and pushback for people who did not understand. And it was only through that lens of my existing expertise that I could fully appreciate that space. Um, you will never know everything there is to learn about what it means for this type of technology to disrupt heavily regulated industries which brings us to the point about legislation and regulation in the space. And people ask me all the time, how does a person like you, licensed in four states to practice law, full tenured professor, co-hire appointment at the Penn State Institute for Computational and Data Sciences, like, what are you doing here? And my question back to them is, why are you not? It's not a matter of if, but when. These are the same questions from a national and international point of view that people raised with the internet, the advent going from web 1.0 to 2.0, it makes me think of Bryant Gumbel and, and Katie Keurig trying to figure out electronic mail in like 1994. Uh, these are the same things, but with an important caveat and something that you mentioned earlier, now we're not just talking about the exchange of information, which everybody wanted to be on board with and to promote the innovation and the technology in that space. The disruption is happening not just in the financial sector, but disrupting and perhaps creating a customer service issue for nation states. That's a very different proposition. And so the, the discussions that we had around the internet and providing space for the innovation to proliferate, we don't have the same enthusiasm from governments because now it's disrupting a space where they had obviously the first mover advantage and dare I say the greatest to lose by the proliferation of this technology. Just a little backstory. Uh, I did an episode on crypto a while back and I was going through my notes on that episode with Meta Parlikar. I think her firm is Casper Technologies and she's working on blockchain technologies, broadly speaking. And I recalled from that conversation when I was going over my notes that uh, she was speaking, I think very enthusiastically about the benefits or what she saw the benefits of crypto being, first and foremost among them, the swiftness of transactions, the fact that if you want to send money to somebody, you don't have to, for example, wait three days. You can have a kind of expedient, efficient form of transaction that, and I'll just put it blankly, does not uh, have to abide by any forms of the kind of regulatory or, or rules-based structure that the financial institutions dealing with more traditional forms of, of currency exchange have to do. And in that conversation, you know, uh, I pointed out to her 
uh, because we were talking about regulation, that that kind of efficiency is the benefit of not having regulation. And that once there is a sort of regulatory framework around that, um, what regulatory frameworks tend to do are slow things down because they want to, for example, check for authenticity. They want to make sure that the permissions that are allegedly granted are actually granted. They want to do things like check for privacy, check for make sure that uh, transactions are indeed authentic and that they originate and end in authentic and legitimate um, sources. And those things tend to take up time. Mitigating what she was uh, enunciating as some of the primary in incentives or benefits of cryptocurrency being. Now, I'm not sure that I have this right, or maybe I've I've misunderstood something about it. And if I have, please, please, please correct me or challenge me um, on some of these premises. But it seems to me like I think that there's a legitimate sense in which people are, in general, afraid or mistrustful of new technologies. I certainly am, in part because I see the damage done by so many technologies released into the world without proper consideration or protections, in particular in, in the context of digital technologies, whereby in other forms of technological production, we do things like clinical trials and make sure that the technologies that we're releasing, for example, a pharmaceutical is safe before we have people start using it. The digital space, that has been less the case. I think many of us working and thinking in the digital space um, have built in a sense of mistrust because of that history. But I have to also wonder whether some of the claims of, of crypto capitalize on the fact that there are uh, very little regulatory bodies or protections, we might call them, um, res restrictions built into the market as it exists, and that regulation in that sense is orthogonal to what crypto effectively provides or, or what it drives or incentivizes people to, to use it. Am I totally off base? Is there some truth to that? What's your take? Well, it's one of the, one of the myths that I explore in the book that there's no regulation and that it's not secure. The reason that, you know, when I going back to the early days of the stock market, for example, and, and the reason that regulation crept up to to reestablish some type of uh, stability and forced transparency, you know, by disclosures, it makes me think of the 1933 Act, 1934 Act on the security side, for example, to create legal frameworks in the absence of accessibility, although I don't think it's particularly accessible. That's a whole podcast for another day um, when I think of systemically marginalized populations. But the idea of having to create legal frameworks to provide the transparency, uh, disclosures, to have some oversight, et cetera, was required in an opaque system where there's a lot of stuff happening under the buttonwood tree and in, in dark smoke-filled rooms that created an environment where people could be easily taken advantage of, didn't have access, and there was an asymmetry of information. That doesn't exist at all in the crypto space. In fact, the rules are baked in and hardwired in the software. We talk about hacks, but that is from bad actors hacking into systems. You could certainly have a software protocol that fails. We're talking about software, right? Whether intentional or unintentional. And we can talk about the failure of businesses, not because they're fraudulent, but because the overwhelming majority of startups fail in two to five years, right? Separate and apart from failure. Cryptography and consensus protocols, uh, the rules of engagement are actually hardwired into the system. It doesn't actually make sense. The other thing I want to get to after making this point is one of the other myths is around this idea that there's no regulation and no, it's completely unfettered and there is, it's just the Wild West. Ask Sam Bingman Fried is that, if that's accurate. Ask those who have been hunted down by the Department of Justice with companies like Chainalysis. Uh, look at the statistics from Chainalysis that less than, and this is a conservative estimate, Less than 2% of all activities in the crypto space are directly involved in criminal activity. The number one currency used in criminal activity around the world is the almighty dollar. And no one's throwing that out. <laughs> no one is burning them as far as I can tell. And so one of the biggest sources of what we uh, refer to in the, the crypto ecosystem as FUD or fear, uncertainty, and doubt um, oftentimes that's injected 
by incumbents, by legacy institutions, not the least of which is the current administration, around the truth about the technology. The technology does what the law in, is intended to do in the absence of technology, in the absence of the framework, the guideposts, the guide rails. Um, now, in terms of regulation, I do certainly agree that there is no dedicated body to cryptocurrency. In fact, in, I want to say, March of 2022, President Biden signed an executive order for Article II agencies to go forward and do their reports and committees. I, I participated in a lot of that earlier this year. I testified before the House Financial Services Subcommittee um, one year to the day uh, after that EO to decide what did agencies do, what was Treasury doing, SEC, CFTC, and uh, what we have established is maybe there is a reason why the current administration, and look, I'm a Black queer woman who is quite liberal, so this is not a political statement against one party, although I do find it interesting that from a pro-business point of view, you will find voices on the Hill and certainly in the administrative state that would say something different. But this administration is injecting into the conversation, I think, misinformation and in some instances outright, I have to say, disinformation about the propriety of the technology. And that is problematic because we have people, trusted voices in this space who are proliferating the same type of, of, again, FUD about whether or not this is secure, is this only for criminals, et cetera. And I think that muddies the waters for the, those who could just have separate fact from fiction is the way that I describe it, to make their own decision. They never talk anybody into buying crypto or not, but uh, my lane is really to avoid the carnival barkers that say all crypto all the time but also the question the naysayers that say no ever. Um, what are the facts that separate fiction so that people can make their own decisions about regulation, uh, policy initiatives, the taxation of crypto assets, et cetera. There's so much that needs to be done, but we do have to push past things that are not accurate about the technology that would lead people to believe that is untrustworthy as, a, as a, an entire economy. I want to push uh, a little bit into your your comments about the administration because I know that you recently, and that that is to say, in March of this year, gave testimony before the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Digital Assets, Financial Technology, and Inclusion. And the title of your testimony was "Coincidence Coordinated: The Administration's Attack on the Digital Assets Ecosystem." To me, those sound like fighting words. What are you responding to? I hear that you seem to understand this administration as adversarial to uh, uh, crypto uh, technologies and certainly digital assets. But I'm wondering what, what the testimony was specifically, if it is specifically responding to in terms of an incident or an inciting event, what, and what the outcome of that testimony was. Well, that hearing was not my title. That was the title that was given to it by the, the majority chair, I believe that was French Hill. That was not my title, but that was the title of the hearing. Um, my remarks were to address the title of the hearing, but it's not that I didn't disagree with that. I disagree on almost every other thing, but certainly not on this, the way that the chair of that subcommittee positioned that hearing. It was the first hearing because this was the inaugural hearing for that new subcommittee. It was focused on what is commonly referred to in the crypto space as choke point 2.0. For those who aren't aware of what choke point 1.0 was, it was under the Obama administration to cut off access to banking for certain uh, industries that were deemed predatory by that administration. So what are we talking about? We're talking about payday lenders and things of that nature. I know in the cannabis space, cannabis companies have had difficulty becoming banked if a government disagrees with an otherwise law-abiding industry or company, but there was a, an actual policy 1.0 that was actually struck down. We don't have an actual executive order or anything for choke point 2.0, but 
in some in substance, the reaction by agencies, the coordination kind of behind closed doors with the banking industry to make it very difficult to have otherwise lawful businesses engaging in building out the infrastructure, the framework. And you don't have to actually have a token project. I'm an, um, in addition to my work at Penn State Dickinson Law School, I own my own company. It is a an onboarding education platform. I don't sell crypto. I don't invest for people. Whether they buy or not is is up to them, but I provide educational support and resources for them to do so. And there was a time that it was difficult for me to even get a bank account to do that, even though the same bank had my assets for decades. So when that was the hearing that was addressing some of the concerns, also some of the concerns around the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, led by Gary Gensler, was taking it upon himself. And I, the judiciary agrees because he's uh, lost several cases in this lane about using enforcement power rather than rulemakings to go on a one-for-one -one basis against certain entities or companies. He missed FTX, <laughs> which is problematic because they're spending so much time and resources on a one-for-one -one basis with other companies. Some of the leaders, the stalwarts in the industry, which makes no sense. Um, I was arguing and testifying to support a path that's kind of both and. The SEC has enforcement powers, and I want to root out all bad actors, full stop. I'm a lawyer, and I get that. But they also have the idea of rulemaking to set the framework and the rules of engagement, or at least guidance, for an industry, an industry that has been begging for that. And so that was just a, a long way around, but I wanted to provide the proper context for the reason that I was there, what I was testifying to. I also was disappointed in, in some aspects of that hearing because the last part of that subcommittee is supposed to deal with inclusion. And so I was there to talk about the power and the promise, but also the pitfalls for systemically marginalized populations in general, black and brown communities, women, queer community, physically, mentally challenged communities as well. And there wasn't a lot of opportunity for that. I, I had written comments that dealt with it, but there's so many topics that we have to explore when we're talking about opportunities in the next wave of the internet economy, you know, the, the digital global economy, regulation, inclusion, all of those things are kind of part and parcel. It makes it difficult to, to compartmentalize. Actually, I wanted to pick up on the dimension of equity that you talk about, particularly in terms of uh, wealth inequality in the context of historical racial equality in the United States and its intersection with uh, digital assets. In your remarks, you talk about an, an argument that you make about historical wealth and inequality in the context of traditional financial markets, trust in legacy financial institutions. Um, and racial equity in the context of wealth. And I'm wondering if you could tease out that argument a bit for us and, and address that dimension of the hearing that had to do with inclusion. Yeah, this is, uh, some of my remarks and some of the statistics in my written remarks that people can access online or at my website. And, and we'll put the uh, link to that in the show notes. Perfect. It involves the over-indexing of Black and brown investors generally, I was looking at some statistics specifically with black investors from the Ariel Investments and Schwab report. It's an annual report about black investing. And for the first time in 2022, they also included statistics about black crypto investors. And uh, I had no problem with the statistics. It was it was fascinating to see. Black investors, particularly those uh, that tended to be millennials, although I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, and there was some of that as well, over-indexing, meaning having uh, greater investments with a smaller population. And so, but the extrapolation of that data led to certain conclusions that I wasn't a fan of. Um, that was basically folks that were taking advantage of, spending too little time doing their research. And that may be true. I, I think we could paint a broader, broader brush with respect to that point of people doing their own research. And then we can talk about where do we point people uh, to even do said research. 
And so some of the conclusions in the report were problematic to me uh, because I saw different conclusions. I saw, you know, I wanted to get behind. So why would a population that, irrespective of politics, tended to be more conservative and less trusting of institutions, find a lane and be willing to spend more time and more money in a space that was just emerging. Highly volatile. I, I talk about volatility as a myth, but there's a certainly, objectively speaking, we have volatile asset class. It's in its nascent stages, although there are different types of assets that maintain their value, stable coins, uh, story for another day. But I started to drill down on the opportunity and the why. It made me, in my book and some of my other research, go back to the Freedmen's Bank and what Frederick Douglass ultimately called an albatross around his neck. I think it was even more strong than that. It was like a, it, like dead weight around his neck by the time he was asked to come in and try and stay, save it. Long story short, with the Freedmen's Bank uh, that was created and initiated to provide banking for previously enslaved population, men at the time, not women. So a story for another day. But it was uh, created by the Office of the Comptroller of Currency of the United States, and it fell victim to all sorts of fraud where people were actually, it's very Sam Bankman freed like getting people to put deposits into the Freeman's Bank, taking it out, putting it into risky investments, losing it, but putting that loss back on the Freeman's Bank balance sheets. All of the backroom nefarious activity that continues to drain wealth from the Black community. And to say that plus the ways that Black communities, or not even just Black communities, anyone can start to build generational wealth it's not being a high-income wage earner. You know, income is taxed at a higher rate than capital assets. That's why wealthy people say, pay me $1, but give me $10 million in stock options. And because you have an asset that goes out into the world and works harder than you do, that makes money while you sleep or while you're in the south of France, that is an opportunity in the crypto space because of all of the gains. Even in crypto winters, when you pull back and look from January 2009 to today, you have an upward trajectory. People who started with me at Advantage Evans Academy in 2020, when the price of Bitcoin, for example, was just north of 10,000, even with the market now at 35, it's still a 3x their investments. And this is not legal or investment advice. I'm using it to make the point that Black folks just found a way to begin the process of creating generational wealth by investing in an asset that not only has a, has a value on that day, but will experience capital gains and capital losses and has a sufficient history that have passed as prologue, this over time will continue to go up. And so that was what I was interested in unpacking. The other side of that is when if people are chasing because of FOMO, not having a sufficient amount of information, trusting centralized exchanges that don't have the level of accountability that you mentioned earlier, that is incredibly problematic, probably worse than before. And so that's why the education in this lane is so important, right-sizing the conversations, but also um, allowing people to get the right information so that they can see that a power move could be made here that doesn't rely on where you live that isn't beholden to redlining, that doesn't have a gatekeeper that can keep you out, not just private business, but also governments. And so these are the things that uh, once you start to peel back the layers, starts to at least uh, show the cracks of possibility when people are informed and can make prudent decisions. I'm always interested in these conversations in the relationship that people draw between pushing people toward more secure, more stable forms of of uses of a technology and moving them away from the ways in which that technology can cause harm or cause damage. In, for example, the social media space, uh, I talk to people about how, how do you provide a framework for people to engage in social media in ways that 
elevate the things that social media offers and limit the dimensions in which it can cause harm. And I, I'm, I'm curious about the same thing in the crypto space, because when I talk to my friends over in the social media space, they tend to fall into roughly three camps, really. The first camp is ask individuals to do their homework, right? The, the case that you're making right now, education. <laughs> right. The worst ever. Right. The second one is businesses should do better and we should give them government's frameworks and push them to be more ethical. And then the third is regulation, right? And depending sometimes on where people's best financial interests are, um, sometimes depending on the position that they uphold, they, they tend to belong to one of those three camps. And, and I take your point, I think, very strongly about education. I think that education both moves people away from the ways in which it can be taken advantage of by bad actors or by the ways in which the market capitalizes on emotional tendencies like FOMO to invest unwisely and irrationally and rashly. But now I also want to ask about regulation. And to go back to that conversation, you know, I'm wondering about some of the challenges you see about regulating crypto uh, financial technologies and digital assets. From my perspective, one of the ones that I see as a major challenge is um, what we were talking about earlier, which is that in the context of more traditional assets, we have governments and individual national governments creating regulation and legislation. In the context of something that's an international or transnational form of digital currency, it seems like we currently lack a sustainable body to create that kind of regulation or to be able to work across different governments, which have very different privacy laws, which have very different intellectual property laws, which have very different laws regarding taxation, the ability to cover assets, keep assets, et cetera, in different ways. And so I guess I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the challenges you see to regulation and what, if anything, you envision as the possibility for maybe stepping up to the challenge that regulation in terms of its kind of national construct in more traditional forms provides, I think, insufficiently at this point. I think we have a we have the alphabet soup in the United States uh, where the way that laws are created and implemented and overturned or policed, right? When you think of, of the, the tripartite system that we had for our government, it's very complex. We have committees and subcommittees that can't agree on proper jurisdiction. Um, we have agencies that are having high stakes boxing matches in front of everyone about who should be the actual re regulator. None is clearly empowered for this specific industry. And I think it's difficult, if, dare I say, impossible to have one because crypto is programmable. I'll use the example of, of Ethereum. Ethereum was the second cryptographically secured native currency to a blockchain. Um, and in the Ethereum space, not only do you have ETH, but you also have the thousands of tokens. And I say I distinguish native coins from tokens because although sometimes people use these terms interchangeably, token, tokens write their transactions and balances, their, their data, their information to an existing blockchain. They don't have a separate one for themselves. Native coins do, Bitcoin, Ethereum. You could find others that have their own platform, their own rules, their own protocol. But then you have thousands and thousands, over 40,000 at this point, different types of coins and tokens, mostly tokens in the Ethereum space and other blockchains like it. And even the taxonomy around the, the nature of an asset, right? Because we have the Howey test from the Supreme Court that the SEC will use and courts will use to determine if an asset is some type of investment contract or other type of security. And if it's not, do we have a commodity? We can basically in the United States only agree that Bitcoin is a commodity. I argue, and many do uh, as well, that uh, ETH is a commodity as well. But you had a lot of unregistered securities with the proliferation uh, of, of tokens. That makes it a challenge for any one agency or or committee to have the full run of the house because you can have an asset that changes character over time. ETH started out arguably as a, an unregistered security. They had an ICO or an initial coin offering. 
to raise money to build out something that didn't exist, promising a return on the investment that was through their own efforts, right? That's like like Security 101. But by the time the law kept up, I mean, uh, caught up, by that time it was fully decentralized. There was no one centralized entity. There's no um, one person or one group or one foundation. It became a commodity. We don't know of many assets that do that, right? So although we've had these exotic and sophisticated things and tulips and orange groves, you name it, generally speaking, the existing laws were sufficient to address that. And I argue that in many instances it is. A security is still going to be defined as a security. We have commodities. There are tax rules. And every nation has its own approach to that. It makes me think at a higher level of intellectual property. You have countries that widely differing intellectual property laws as a matter of protections and enforcement. But then you have international treaties and conventions to apply. We have the Berne Convention uh, for copyright, for example. And I imagine a world where internationally you will start to have nations and organizations coalesce around that in the state, same way you have ICANN, right? When you think about other ways that we have international but also national rules around the internet and this will be the next wave final point is almost every nation that i can think of is investing time and research into central bank digital currencies Um, and so in order to do that there will have to be coordination not just at a national and regional level but also an international level we have done hard things in the past we certainly can do them in the future this will require more collaboration and the hyper-competitive nature that we see. And that will be challenging, but the the horse has already left the barn. The technology is already out there. You, it is what it is. And so we need clearer guidance so that we are not inadvertently or intentionally here in the United States driving business to other places that have less of an alphabet soup, more willing to engage, more willing to set the guardrails, it doesn't make it easy. It just makes it clear. Uh, and, and so I look forward to the time when we kind of come to our senses here in the States and, and try and keep this business here with clearer rules for engagement rather than the one-off enforcements. This is a show primarily about ethics and technology. And while I take for granted that when we're talking about regulation, we are, in a sense, already talking about ethics, that is to say, the rules that benefit and protect society so that society can ideally flourish, minimizing the harms and maximizing the benefits by restricting and channeling the actions of any group of actors, entities, or arenas. I was hoping that you could discuss the intersection of ethics and crypto directly. What ethical issues are at stake with crypto? What are the ethical stakes of regulation around crypto? That's a uh, challenging question for me to answer because it's just, it's this huge area. There's so many ethical implications. Are we talking about from racial equity, social justice, economic justice, truth and transparency? I think crypto has actually cornered the market on that in ways that our existing government or or, um, economic system has not because everything is is full-facing. You could go to any... Um, blockchain explorer and see all the information. Some of the things that I am concerned about is when, when we talk about financial privacy, and yet you can go to any blockchain explorer and see literally the balances of a wallet. You may not know who that person is. Oftentimes we will not. It's pseudonymous, not anonymous. Uh, in an overwhelming in overwhelming cases, there are some privacy coins, but blockchains are public facing and transparent, what are the financial privacy implications there? I also am very concerned from a financial privacy point of view about these central bank digital currencies that would allow governments, I mean, the first government out of the gates to create a central bank digital currency is China. And so being able to monitor 24-7 all activities through a particular wallet that is assigned to a citizen is highly problematic as a matter of financial privacy. Very, very dangerous. I don't know how you balance that. I don't know how many assurances or what the guardrails would have to look like as our country begins to uh, develop its own central bank digital currency. 
on one hand, it makes it great to speedily send out assets and resources that could have been great instead of actual physical checks during the pan- the worst of the pandemic years. The other side of that is being able to confiscate property uh, without due process and all sorts of other constitutional questions that, and also just, just because something is private doesn't mean it's illegal. If I gave you $9,999 in cash, <laughs> right, uh, between you and me, uh, or sent that, you know, we have this digital footprint all the time. So a lot of our money is do- ones and zeros. But part of a free and democratic society is about privacy. And so that, I think, is the biggest issue of the day, is how to ensure that when you leave digital footprints and who has access to the information and what is done with it, when it's not public and permissionless, when it's actually beholden to a, a company. There are many companies. JP Morgan has JP Coin. PayPal came out with its own stable coin. You know, uh, Circle has USDC, although it, it uh, doesn't have any window into to transactions. The easiest way to learn about someone is to know their financial history. It's not their diary or talking to them. It's seeing how their money moves. And that, I think, is the biggest issue of our time. Thank you very much, Tanya. All right. Thank you. Appreciate you.